G'day everyone, happy Easter. Lovely to see you here tonight. Uh, amazing to think that people all around the world are doing exactly what we're doing. For the past 2,000 years, billions of people have done exactly what we're doing. Getting together and celebrating an event. But not just a event, the event. The event that has shaped human history more than any other. Uh, and I'm thrilled uh, that we get to look at that event, the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, tonight. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at EV. Uh, part of my job, uh, particularly my role, is I get to speak to people investigating Christianity. It might be people for the very first time looking into the things of Jesus, or it might be people who've been brought up with Christianity and just want to get a bit deeper and checking out uh, what it's all about. But it's my privilege to get to meet up with people. One of the things that I do when I do so is I ask everyone the same question. And I don't do that in order to test anyone. It's not from that perspective. It's, it's more that I can hear where they're coming from. The question sounds very simple, and yet what I've discovered over the years is that actually it's not simple to answer. And certainly there's a vast diversity of answers that you can give to it. The question is very simple. Here it is. What is a Christian? I want to give you the opportunity right now in your mind, just take a moment. How would you answer that question? What is a Christian? Not long ago, a few months ago, I was chatting to a guy called Mitch, who's been coming to our church, um, investigating the things of Jesus. Mitch at this stage wasn't a Christian, although I'm stoked to tell you he's since become a Christian, uh, which is awesome. Um, but Mitch wasn't a Christian, and I asked him that question. I said, Mitch, what is a, a Christian? And, and he's a thoughtful kind of guy, so he thought for a while, um, and I'm there going, is he going to answer? And then finally, he did. He goes, Dave. And he said four things, and I remember them. Mitch said, a Christian is someone who loves God, who loves Jesus, who loves people, and who wants to please God. What do you think of that answer? I reckon he's right and wrong simultaneously. He's right in the sense that that answer, love, loving God, loving people, loving others, pleasing God, that's a beautiful little encapsulation of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? It's a beautiful description of Christianity, I think. But he's wrong not in anything that he said, but actually in what he didn't say. You see, Mitch missed out something in his answer, which isn't like a sideline issue, but is the core center, the heartbeat of what Christianity is. In fact, without it, there can be no Christianity. Did you pick what he missed? He didn't mention the death or the resurrection of Jesus. Let me state it as clearly as I possibly can, maybe for you to hear for the very first time, that unless Jesus physically died and unless he physically rose from the dead, then there is no Christianity. If those things didn't happen, Christianity is a farce, it's a fraud, oh, it's a fine philosophy, but that's all it is, just a human philosophy. Listen to how the Bible puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 14. It should come up on the screen. If Christ, this is written just a few years after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Your faith is useless, futile, a complete waste of your and my time if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I wonder, do you find that surprising? It's extreme, isn't it? 
If you do find it surprising, I'm pleased. Because I don't think it's possible to encounter Jesus properly. To truly wrestle with who he is and what he said, with the man that he represents in the Bible, without realizing that if nothing else, Jesus of Nazareth is constantly surprising. He comes at life from a different angle. He's got a different set of values. He views things from a different perspective. He shocked the world when he lived. He was completely countercultural. But not just then. He would be even more countercultural today. He still is. Now, he presented that different perspective in a wide variety of teaching about a vast array of areas, but there's one area in particular where he showed his diversity, where he showed his surprising perspective, and that was when it came to life and death. When Jesus speaks about life and death, people were shocked because he said things people had never heard before. When Jesus spoke about his own life and death, people were shocked. But when he also spoke about yours, watch out. No one knew how to take him. And so tonight, all we're going to do is is pretty simple. We're going to try and answer three questions together. Look at the Bible and see if we can get to the bottom of of three questions, three answers, and and see what we can discover about Jesus, about who he really is. The questions that are, I hope, straightforward ones. One, what actually happened at the resurrection? Can we know for sure? Is it true? Two, what was the reaction of the disciples? Well, one particular disciple specifically And finally, perhaps even most pertinently for you, depending on where you sit with God at the moment, what does all of this mean? Many people could say, oh, Jesus died for sins. Maybe you've heard that kind of language before. But why did Jesus rise? Could you answer that? That's what we're looking at tonight. So let's get straight to it. Why did Jesus, not why did Jesus rise, let's get straight to it. The resurrection, what happened, and what does it mean? If you've got a Bible, open up to John chapter 20. That's what we'll be looking at uh, tonight. If you don't have a Bible, don't sweat it too much, because most of the verses will be on the piece of paper. Did you get this piece of paper? We'll be on the piece of paper that you're given, so you can follow along and make sure uh, we're not just making it up as we go. Uh, The Bible tells us, the last part of John 19, that Jesus was crucified on Friday, on a Friday. And that's what we celebrated a few days ago in Good Friday. Jesus was physically killed. And I make a big deal about that, because there are some people who go, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. Jesus actually didn't die. He just swooned on crucifixion. He just fainted. He wasn't dead. Now, there are some people who say that, and yet the evidence, the eyewitness accounts that we have say that's absolute nonsense. That's not what happened. The Romans, let me tell you what they could do really, really well. Kill people. Okay? They weren't amateurs. My in-laws are Italians. They're still really good at it. Okay? So let me make it very, very clear The Italians, the Romans, they knew what they were doing. Jesus was dead. His body is taken down from the cross, and he's taken to a tomb. A tomb isn't a a hole in the ground. It's not a grave. It's like a crypt. A big rock pulled away in the side of a mountain, and that's where Jesus' body was put, and the stone pulled over in front of it. That's important to remember. A stone so heavy, not one person could lift it on their own. Two Roman guards were placed outside the tomb to stop Jesus' followers stealing the body. Jesus is dead. He's in a tomb, an unmovable stone, and two Roman guards. That's how it remains Friday. That's how it remains Saturday. But then Sunday happens. And what happens Sunday changes everything. 
The first few verses of John chapter 20 tell us that Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, goes to visit the tomb. But when she gets there, she sees the stone is rolled away. Her emotional response, absolute grief. She believes the Romans or the Jews had stolen the body. She is absolutely devastated that that's happened. She runs and gets Peter and John, Jesus' two best mates and closest disciples. They run and check it out and they go one step further than Mary. They poke their heads in and they say, my goodness, the body isn't there. We're not told their emotional response in John's gospel, but in one of the other biographies, the, the book of Matthew, we are told Peter's response. Peter is baffled. He wonders, what is going on? Peter and John leave, presumably to tell the other disciples what's going on. But Mary, Mary Magdalene, precious Mary, she stays outside next to the tomb weeping. You got that picture in your mind? Visualize it. There's a stone pulled away, a tomb, no body, no guards, Mary weeping. When you look at John chapter 20, verse 14, and let me read to you what happens next. Mary hears something. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. What do you make of that account? eyewitness account. Well, like any historical document, what we need to do is test it. We need to view it as evidence and test whether or not we think it's trustworthy and true. The problem with historical evidence is you don't test it the same way as scientific evidence, and so people can get a little bit upset that we can't put the Bible in a test tube and work out whether or not it's true. I understand that. But that's not how we test any historical evidence. We test historical evidence differently than scientific evidence. What we do instead is ask questions of historical documents and artifacts. A, a bunch of questions. Uh, has the source documentation been found? Are there more than one source saying the same thing? Are the authors or, or other people involved, are they trustworthy sources? Um, is there evidence of an authentic uh, replication of how it's gone from one to the other to the other. That's how we taste ancient documents. Now, we don't have time to look at all those categories for this particular document, except suffice to say, just to the side, if this is something you're very curious about, the Bible is the most closely investigated and tested book of antiquity. There's been no book investigated like the Bible. And if you're interested in that, finding out more, I'd love for you to just Google it. Even better, though, you can come to our upcoming life series in a few weeks, which I'll give you some details about. Ask us any questions, dig into these things, or come see me later. love to talk to you more about it. So we can't, at the moment, look at all those categories. However, I think there are two bits of evidence in the reading we just had, in the bigger picture of John 20, that point to us that this is a verifiably, historically true account of what happened. Two things in particular I want you to take note of. One... It's enormously historically significant that the very first person to discover the empty tomb and the very first person to indeed see the risen Jesus was a woman. Why? Because repugnantly, disgustingly, but historically truthfully, in the first century Palestine, a woman's word 
was worth nothing. And that's, you see, another piece of how Jesus is so countercultural. Jesus valued women. He values women. But in the first century, a 12-year-old boy could say something in a court of law and it would always contradict and be approved higher than a woman, any woman. So why is it so significant? My friends, if you were to concoct a story of such spectacular, miraculous events as a resurrection from the dead, if you were to make it up from nothing in the first century, the last person you would use to verify that account is a woman. Their word was worth nothing in the ancient world. And if the entire thing was a lie, why on earth would you use them as witnesses? In fact, further than that, Christianity, you might not know this, but Christianity was derided, was mocked and belittled for its reliance on female testimony in the ancient world. The ancient world laughed at Christianity for the prominence of women in not just the central core of the church, but the testimonies of what happened. Number two, look at the emotional response of the disciples. Mary weeps. Peter, confused. John, we don't know what he feels, but certainly at the very least, baffled. Why is that significant? Well, firstly, the disciples had followed Jesus around for around three years at this stage, and they had heard him say around three times, I'm going to come back from the dead. And yet there they are, they go to the tomb, he's not there, and they don't think, he's come back from the dead. They think, what? (laughs) The disciples saw Jesus rise other people from the dead. Of all people encountering an empty tomb, these are the people you would assume are hopeful. And yet the way the disciples are constantly, constantly, relentlessly reflected upon in the Gospels, in the biographies of Jesus, is not hopeful, but hopeless. (laughs) But who wrote those biographies? The disciples. If you were to concoct a story of such magnificent and enormous, miraculous power as the resurrection of the dead that you hoped would be passed on from generation to generation for millennia, and you would insert yourself into it. Is that what you'd do? Make yourself out to be an idiot? To be a fool? To be completely baffled? Or instead, would you make yourself the hero of the story? Ancient historians point to both these things as compelling pieces of evidence for all of us to consider that, hold on, this is what's called the ring of truth to it. And so there, question one, what happened at the resurrection? The claim is that Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared first to Mary, some other women, and then to the rest of the disciples. But number two, what about the response of the disciples? Well, if you continue to read through John chapter 20, you'll see Jesus appears to a big group of the disciples. He shows them the holes in his hands. In some of the other gospel accounts, we've got that he eats a piece of fish. Why does he do that? It's not because he loves fish so much. Okay? It's to prove that he can eat, that he's not a ghost, he's not a mirage. Okay? He appears to all of them except one. And for this section, grab, grab this piece of paper out and follow along. And let's look at the response of Thomas. Now, Thomas also known as Didymus. Can we just pause there? Do you reckon Thomas is really stoked that forever he wasn't known as Doubting Didymus? Don't you think? It's kind of like his hip-hop name, Didymus. 
They got big laughs in the morning. Anyway, now, <laughs> Thomas, the 50-year-olds really loved it. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Wait, how would you feel if your best friends and trusted colleagues told you that your ferocious, fearless leader was raised from the dead? Would you feel, what, jealous maybe? Joyful? How's Thomas respond? How's he feel? He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Now, what do you call that emotion? Well, Jesus calls it doubt. Far be it for me to disagree with Jesus. It's doubt. But I think it's, it's doubt plus some other things. It's cynical. You know that word? Cynical. It's skeptical. Thomas will not believe. It's faithless. It's questionable. And you know, I have to say to you, it's absolutely and utterly, personally, believable. You see, we, perhaps more than any other people in human history, more than any other people who've ever existed, hold to the principle of seeing is believing. Unless I can see a recording of it on my iPhone, a video of it on, on YouTube, I'm not going to believe it happened. I have to see it. Not long ago, I went on holidays uh, to Canberra. <laughs> and they say we haven't been hurt by COVID, you know? Holidays to Canberra? <laughs> but nonetheless, I went there and I caught up with some friends of mine that I haven't seen for around six or seven years. I went to their wedding but haven't seen them since then. Friends on Facebook really hadn't stayed in touch very much at all. We're organising a catch-up at, at a cafe. And uh, as I'm on the phone organising this thing, I'm like, okay, I'll book, I'll book you some, some seats to join us. He goes, make sure you book um, two high chairs for Jack and Alex. And I'm like, Jack and Alex? High chairs? Jack and Alex, who are they? He's like, they're my kids. I've got two kids. And I said, I haven't seen them on Facebook. He goes, yeah, we, we decided not to put their photos on Facebook. And I said, are you sure you have two kids? <laughs> Unless we see it, we won't believe it. But Thomas is not just a normal, ordinary cynic, seeing his believing kind of guy. He's an Australian-level 21st century cynic. Because to him, it's not just seeing his believing. Look what he says. Unless I feel him, unless I'm able to touch him, I'm not going to believe it. It's utterly believable. Now, there's much for us to, to think about and laugh at, I reckon, in this interaction with Thomas. But there are some historically compelling pieces of this interaction as well. You see, one of the things that we can learn from this interaction with Thomas is to help us conquer what C.S. Lewis, the 20th century uh, theologian and author, calls chronological snobbery. Have you heard that term? Chronological snobbery is the idea the patronising nonsense, that we can look at people from the first century or even before the first century and we can look down our noses at them as gullible, moronic fools. People, by the way, kind of like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, those guys, those idiots, they're gullible morons, not like us. <laughs> I have Netflix. I, I even have Stan. I have Google. Thank you very much. Those guys in the first century, they had no idea what... Difference. Thomas is not gullible. He's not moronic. He's not idiotic. Can I, 
also suggest to you that Jesus is not moronic. He's not idiotic. He's not a fool. He's no one's fool. Read him. Read of him. The second thing historically we pick up from this interaction with Thomas is just reaffirming or affirming maybe for the first time that Christianity is a faith, a religion of history. By that I mean it's very important that everyone in this room understands that whether you think Christianity is true or not, whether you think Jesus is the Lord, he did rise from the dead, please do not make the mistake that this is some sort of metaphor for a spiritual resurrection. This is not mythology. It's not allegory. It's not fairy tale or fable. This is not Hercules or Thor or Iron Man. This is none of those things. This is the claim to be history, real times, real places, real people, real events. But the third thing I want to point out to you from this interaction with Thomas is is a little bit different. It's more personal. You see, I reckon this interaction we see here leads to hope. Because Thomas is a hardcore skeptic. And yet he's about to move from deep skepticism to faith. And if he can do it, so can you. So can anyone you know. Look what happens next, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the door was locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Seven days of doubting. Seven days of listening to people celebrate. Seven days of refusing to believe. No, it didn't happen. No, I don't believe it. No, I don't think it's true. And then after seven days, Jesus appears again. He gives a traditional Jewish greeting of shalom, peace be with you. And then he turns his attention to Thomas. What do you think Thomas felt? What do you think he thought Jesus was going to say to this doubter? To this one who would not believe come what may? Jesus turns his attention to Thomas, verse 27, and he said to him, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting. Believe. Thomas does not reach out his hands. He does not put his finger in Jesus' hand and touch his side. Thomas instead has an epiphany. I love that word. That's an existing truth that you're unaware of, that you suddenly become aware of. I've been wrong. This is right. And so Thomas, gripped with a vice-like realisation that Jesus is alive and all the consequences and repercussions of what that means, responds the only way he can. And in verse 28... He cries out to him, my Lord, my God. He doesn't say, Jesus, what do I need to do to claw my way back to your affections? Jesus, what religious ritualism do I need to perform now in order to to make myself right with you? He said he personally and simply says, my Lord and my God. So question one, what happened at the resurrection? Jesus rose and appeared to people. Question two, what do we learn from the disciples' reactions? Firstly, Jesus forgives all doubt. Jesus forgives all disbelief. 
But also Jesus has given enough evidence to prove himself to be who he says he is. But now the big question, certainly the burning question for many of us here tonight, is what does it mean? Why did he rise? And what possible consequences there for me today in 2021? Well, there's a plethora of consequences. There's books about all of them. But all I want us to do tonight is focus on two. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth proves that Jesus is who he said he was. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved he was God. That's the litmus test. In the thousands of years before Jesus of of human history, however long, in the 2,000 years since, if, if anyone else had been able to do it on their own the way Jesus had, well, we could listen to them. We could take their word for it. With all the increases of medicine and science in the last 2,000 years, if anyone was able to be raised from the dead, would be able to go, wow, tell us us what happens. Tell us how you did it. But that's impossible. Why? Because death is the end. And so as clearly as possible for us to comprehend the equation, if Jesus did rise from the dead, it means he is God. There is no other explanation. No one could do what he did. It's the proof, unshakable, immovable evidence that he is who he said he was. And not just that, it's truth that validates every other thing he said. It means when he speaks about your life, he's not making it up. He made you up. When he speaks about your death, he's not inventing it from thin air. He knows. And when he speaks about who he is, We have to listen to him. You know, Thomas, actually, in John 14, he says to Jesus, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. And Jesus responds by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What that means is that everyone can come to the Father, but you have to go through Jesus. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the one who guides people from one life to the next. He calls himself the bread of life, the water of life that feeds and nourishes the tired and downhearted soul. He said he is the resurrection and the life. Not just that. He said that one day, he promised that one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. And we can trust that those statements are true because Jesus has proven That he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord. But that's not the only consequence of Jesus' resurrection. There is another one. And it's one that, listen, it's one that affects every single one of us in this room, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. Jesus' resurrection proves that all of us can have solid hope of eternal life. What that means is that when we die, if we do what he says and trust in him, trust in his death for us on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, then we will go to heaven as he has promised. Death is not the end. I don't know what your first experience 
uh, with death was, whether you've had one yet or, or not. Mine was actually as a young boy, um, very soon, uh, two incidents close to each other. Uh, the first was my grandpa, Arthur, and he, died, he lived with us and his death. And there was my nephew, Jonathan, and he was just a very young boy. Um, distinct snapshots of memory, because I was so little, um, was their coffins, one big brown one for my huge grandpa, and one small white one for Jonathan. But I, I also got to see their bodies, and I wasn't old enough to understand medicine or, or anything like this. I'm now old and I still can't understand medicine, by the way, but... <laughs> but it wasn't the presence of death that struck me, it was the absence of life, hmm? that this was different. I was also um, struck for the first time in my life that my life would end. That death has a 100% success rate. That we can't avoid it. That it's a freight train that hits all of us one way or the other. And we can try to avoid it. We can try to work out, work out our way around it and diet our way around it and put it off and not think about it and think about a bunch of other things. But one way or the other, none of us is coming out of here alive. And it doesn't matter how good, how kind, how white, how privileged, how rich, how poor, how black. It doesn't matter where you come from. It's coming. And I'm not sure if you've been able to draw this line yet. But unless Jesus is Lord over life and death, then it means death wins. If Jesus isn't Lord, then death is Lord. Because it's coming for all of us and it swallows up everything in its path. I just want to tell you a story uh, to finish to try and illustrate this. On March the 13th, 2014, uh, a five-year-old boy called Joel Green died. Uh, he'd been battling a cancerous tumour uh, in his brain since he was one years old. And his death is obviously a tragedy uh, for everyone involved, his family and everything else. A particular tragedy for his parents, Ryan and Amy Green. Um, but the tragedy and the news of the tragedy then spread further. Um, because Ryan and Amy, his parents, were and still are, by the way, video game developers. And as a way of coping with their grief and honouring their son's life, two years after their son's death, they released a video game about him to honour his memory. The game was called, and it's a real game, you can hire it and rent it and do whatever, play it. The game was called That Dragon Cancer. In the game, you play the role of Joel's parents, Ryan and Amy. And what you do in the game, it's an autobiographical game, is you go through all the different interactions they went through and you attempt to save your son's life. And so in each interaction with the buttons and the keys and whatever, you're able to respond in different ways to try and bring a good resolution, the, the healing and the life of your little boy. Sounds like the most disturbing and harrowing game I've ever heard. 
And so you get the news in the game that your boy is sick, very, very sick. And so you have the options, chemo or radiotherapy. Do we go to this consultant or that consultant? Do we go to this hospital and get that hospital? But it turns out no matter which choice you make, he just keeps getting sicker. Ryan and Amy, the parents, are Christians. And so one of the options is to go to church and pray. And you pray this prayer and you pray that prayer and you go to this church and that pastor and you say this and you say that. But no matter what you do, he gets sicker. And apparently, according to the reviews, by that stage in the game, the the player is wrapped into it but is aware, my goodness, this game is rigged. I can't win. And yet the game continues, the game continues. The three final scenes are particularly harrowing or particularly memorable. In the, the third last scene, you're called into the doctor's office and he sits you down and tells you it's over. There's nothing else we can do. It's time to prepare for end of life care. And you've got all these options, all these things that you can say to him to try and get him to change his mind, to say something different. But it doesn't matter what you say. This poor doctor, he can't change his mind because it's not his decision. And the screen starts to go blue as you drown in grief. The second final scene has got little Joel in a cathedral, his little body at the front. And you get the opportunity to say final prayers and you pray this and you pray that, you pray this, you pray that. And, and each button you press sounds like a pipe organ. So it's this noise that's been made. But then no matter what you do, no matter how you put it together, it doesn't work. And the screen goes black. That dragon, death, the one with your name on it, has claimed another victim. You become aware Joel is dead. But then on the screen, without you touching another button, a word comes up. Loading. Dot, dot, dot. Loading. Dot, dot, dot. And the next screen emerges. And on this screen, you playing the role of Ryan and Amy, the parents, you're on a boat and you're crossing a river. And you're crossing a river to to get to an island. You see an island there, it's tropical paradise. And as you get there, there's this little body, little living being. You get closer and closer and you see it's Joel. You get closer and you see he's surrounded by all the things he loves. His little dog yapping away. Must be dogs in heaven now, I don't know. Pancakes, stacks of pancakes. He loved pancakes. And you can not just speak to him, you can blow bubbles. And he loved bubbles, this little boy. And he giggles and giggles and giggles. It's a happy ever after. You see, Ryan and Amy, the makers of this video game, they are Christians. Joel was a Christian. 
And it turns out the purpose of them making this video game was not just to point to grief and suffering, to give people the experience of grief and suffering associated with life, but also to point everyone to the reality, the truth that through suffering and through death, there is life. There is resurrection. There is eternal life. This life is not all there is. But to get there, you don't need a boat. And there's no river for you to cross. But instead, the something that we need is a someone. And he is a name. And his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead. And he promises you that by believing in him, you too will have eternal life. But he's the only one we can trust. And we can trust him. All we need to do is believe in him. Look what Jesus says to Thomas at the very end of this interaction. Jesus told him in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The truth is I don't know you. I don't know your background. I don't know your doubts and your fears. I don't know what holds you back. I don't know what makes you cynical or skeptical. But Jesus of Nazareth says the same thing to you today as he did to Thomas. Stop doubting. Believe. You've heard the reports. You've got the facts. Live again in him. He's proven it to us by rising from the dead. Believe and live. Why did Jesus rise? He rose so you can. And he's calling on you to believe. My friends, I'm going to finish our time together now by praying. And the prayer I'm going to pray is pretty simple. Um, I'm going to invite you, if you're at the time in your life where you're actually decided, you know what, I'm going to stop running from this. I know this is true. I've been putting it off my whole life. I've been putting it off for months, for years, for weeks, for days. I want to believe. Well, I want to invite you to pray along with me inside your heart and your head. Now, this is not Harry Potter. It's not a magical spell. Okay? It's far better than that. It's just ordinary people talking to an extraordinary God. But if that is something that you would like to do tonight, I want to invite you to pray along with me to stop doubting and believe. Um, so why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Oh, Father. My Lord, I fully and finally accept that your son Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death. His love defeated death. My Lord Jesus, you are my Lord. 
and you are my God. I confess that I've lived apart from you all of my life. Please forgive me. Thank you for giving me life and forgiveness. Thank you for setting me free to serve you. Help me to do that. Help me to put my past behind me and live with the cross before me in gratitude and faith. And Father, I want to pray all of this, and I do pray all of this, in the name of your Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen.